Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed our podcast. This review comes from a former guest, Kim Sorrell. Kim says the podcast is uplifting, informative, and hopeful. Andrea is definitely one of the top 10 podcast hosts ever. Her openness sets the stage to make her guests feel comfortable to open up to. Everyone has a story, their own personal journey, Andrea brings that to life. Cancer stinks. It is so wonderful to have a resource to turn to, and it is great to know that you are not alone. Kim, thank you so much, not only for being a podcast guest, but also for leaving this incredible review and a five-star rating on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Susan Keller is the author of Blood Brother, a memoir. Articles about her story of hope and survival have been widely published. She is a monthly blogger for Psychology Today and Cure Magazine. Susan is a presenter at Dominican University and a CME presenter to the staff at Stanford Cancer Center. Susan, after some technical difficulties, (laughs) I told you, it must be in the air. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. So take us back and let us know what happened and especially when it happened. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm a survivor um, of mantle cell lymphoma, which is a frequently fatal diagnosis. It's not a good one. And um, as I was saying to Andrea, I was diagnosed on September 15th, 2005. National Lymphoma Awareness Day, of which I had no (laughs) awareness that it would be me. And I would love to tell you the story of my diagnosis, because I think this could be really, really helpful to your listeners. And it began um, in about a year previous, September 2004, in the shower, I noticed a little lump under the left, under my left jaw. And I said, hmm, what's that? You know, and it wasn't painful. And so, you know, I, I didn't worry about it, but um, I did go to my doctor, um, which was maybe October. Or so just maybe a month later for um, a uh, regular OBGYN. And I said to him, you know, um, I have this lump. And he was completely unconcerned. Didn't look at it, didn't touch it. Said, I did not look or touch it. Did not look or touch it. He said, You're fighting a virus, don't worry. And I said So just swollen lymph nodes that happen sometimes, right? In the neck. And I thought, well, granted, necks were not his area of expertise, you know. Right. That's true. But at the same time, I kind of wanted to hear that, you know, I was relieved because that's what I wanted to have it be. 
And I literally, I did put it out of my mind. And I used to have long hair, uh, longer. And I would, you know, it, nobody noticed it. No one noticed it until several months later, uh, a friend and I and four women, we went to India and we were, my friend Jeannie and I were sharing a room, luxurious rooms, I have to say, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful country. We loved it. And um, one morning she said, what's that on your neck? And I said, oh, it's, she saw it. She saw it because it was getting bigger. And Got it. she said, you know, what is that? And I said, oh, it's nothing. My doctor told me it's just a lymph node, uh, some virus, but I feel great. So the months went on. I continued to ignore it until other wacky symptoms started to uh, occur. One was that I was having terrible um, leg, foot and leg cramps, you know, like when you're a teenager and you go out dancing half the night and you get back in bed and you've got Charlie horses and it's so painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I was having those. Runners get them a lot, yes, for sure. Yes, I was having those. I was having night sweats. I was um, having shortness of breath. And I thought, oh, come on, it's all menopause. Don't worry about it. You know, it's just what happens. And so one morning, uh, my husband was already off to work. I woke up with the most terrific back pain. I was suffering. So I made my way downstairs, opened Google and put in my wacky symptoms without mentioning the lump because that was no worries. And Google said, oh, kidney infection. You've got a kidney infection. So I said, the back, I can yeah, see that. Yeah, yeah, with the shortness of breath and all blah, blah. Anyway, so I made an appointment with my um, GP and I went in and I saw her and I said, you know, I think I have a kidney infection. And, you know, I can just imagine her like rolling her eyes and going, oh yeah, somebody else with a medical degree from the internet, sure. <laughs> and so she dismissed me and said, oh, well, you know, I'll order a urinalysis. And she was had her hand on the doorknob. And I said, I don't know why. I blurted this out. I have a lump. And she said, what? You know, she didn't touch me. She didn't look at me. But thank God I, I saved my life that day because she turned around and she said, you know, what lump? And I pointed to it and she said, okay, lie down. And she started pressing all over and found lots more and that I hadn't felt. And um, where, where, where you know, under my arms, um, deep in my neck, in the back, you know, and Glance. yeah. And so um, she said, okay, I'm ordering stat blood work and stat x-ray so i was sent downstairs literally 15 minutes later i was in her office again and you know she said come in come on in here and close the door and i said why do i need to come in there and close the door you know i'm she's just i i need to you know the antibiotics and i'll be fine and she sits me down and she says i'm afraid you have lymphoma and from the x-ray, she could see that it was already stage four. The lymph nodes were oh my all gosh, over. Susan. Yeah. 
Oh, I just got. I mean, talk of a before and after moment, right? (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I had to be hospitalized immediately. My blood work showed that I had so little oxygen in my blood that my um, chances of a brain aneurysm or a heart attack were huge. They wanted me in the hospital now. Right. So that's where I went and started emergency um, blood transfusions uh, that happened, went around about three, four days. And um, I I had a, a bone marrow biopsy also, and that was tons of fun. And, um, they discovered that over 90% of my bone marrow was cancerous. They didn't. Oh my God. They did not know how I was walking across the room. And, you know. But you had these symptoms for a year in over time, right? I mean. Yes. The lump was over a year. The, um, the, the, the shortness of breath and the night sweats and all that was maybe four or five months as things were getting worse and worse and worse. So anyway, um, I was um, diagnosed with stage four mantle cell lymphoma, which is, as I mentioned, a nasty one. And, um, you know, I started chemo uh, almost immediately. Wow. Fast. Once it finally happened, fast. Yeah. It was so fast. I mean, once the diagnosis was in, literally, that was, there was no more, you know, real life for me. It was just all hospital. And it was all inpatient, too, because this chemo is so, um, is so badass. It's, you know, it's hyper CVAD. And, you know, one of those um, ingredients in that cocktail is, let me just look at my note, um, Adriamycin, which is, you know, called yeah. the red devil, right? I know Adriamycin. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it was rough. It was really, really rough. Um, I mean, I could go on forever and talking about this journey, but I'm going to stop for a minute. <laughs> so, so tell me, uh, at what point were you referred to an oncologist? You know, did that happen, you know, upon hospital entry? Um, where were you being treated and what kind of support system did you have? Well, the oncologist came literally hours after I was admitted. I mean, she was there right away and she's a beautiful woman. I love her to this day. She's uh, from the Ukraine, you know, so she's going through a really hard time right now. But um, she walked into my hospital room and she said, hello, I'm Natalia Grace. I'm your oncologist. And I wanted to say, I don't need you go away. You know, I was in such denial. I, oh my God, I was, I had a PhD in denial. I was, (laughs) I was so good. That might be the outtake right there. (laughs) I was so good at denying what was happening. Even though you're in the hospital. Yes. And there've been, you know, PET scans and x-rays and bone marrow biopsies. And I just said, well, you know, I'm not sure it could still be a kidney infection. So anyway, um, yeah, the oncologist came immediately. Um, I love her to this day. She calls me her miracle patient and, uh, 
I, I think I am. I do. I think I am. And I was being Where treated, are you being treated? I was being treated at um, Stanford. Uh, no, sorry, San Rafael uh, Kaiser. They um, later, uh, you know, had me transferred to Stanford. So, Did yeah, they? yeah, I got my my uh, bone marrow transplant at Stanford. And what kind of support system did you have? Um, it, it, it was tremendous. It was really, really tremendous. Um, my husband is a great guy. He was with me every step of the way. Uh, we have a daughter and she was uh, in Southern California then going to USC and she would come up whenever she could. Lots of friends. Um, I was very, very fortunate. And to have the oncologist, I did. She, I believe yeah. she saved my life. Wow. How soon did you call your husband? I mean, were you on the way to the hospital and thought maybe I should give him a call? I didn't call him. My doctor, the GP, said, let me call him for you. And I said, okay, please. So I was just whisked off to the hospital and he was working. One, one less thing for you to yes. do. Yes, and he was working in San Francisco and um, she called him. He had been, you know, walking across the street after lunch, whatever, and he gets this news that, you know, your wife is in the hospital with stage four lymphoma. I mean, we, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So tell people just you know, your husband's in San Francisco, you're in San Rafael at this point, right. Stanford's in Palo Alto. So kind of triangulate that for people in terms of really understanding there's some distance. Here. Yes, there is. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, my husband, he got home very quickly uh, because San Francisco is only about 20, 24, 25 miles from us. We're just north of that in Marin. And so he was able to get home quickly. And the hospital is not that far from our house either. So we were very lucky to have all of this, um, this care nearby and easy to get to the, to, to the Kaiser Hospital. Now, when we had to go to Stanford, that was an entirely different question because they will not allow anyone to have to cross a bridge while they're under treatment. So we had to live down at, uh, in the Stanford area. Okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. In, I've probably done at least 80 interviews. You know, a lot of them aren't out, in our, but at least, and I have never heard this before. And of course there's, there are bridges everywhere. I mean, you can't get away. Yeah. So why that, that is, what, why? We'll start with that, and then we'll talk about Stanford. <laughs> I would venture to guess that the reason why is that there's a lot of time-sensitive treatment involved. Um, it isn't just sort of loosey-goosey, laissez-faire, well, you'll get here and you'll get this or that. It's very regimented. And I, you know, we live 60 miles from Stanford or maybe a little more, and that's yeah. too far. And if there was a bridge closure and I couldn't get down there, I don't know what the the ramifications of that would be. You know, the repercussions. I guess I just never thought about, are there a lot of bridge closures? Um, no. Does that happen? It has happened and it does happen. If there's an accident, a serious one, yes, the bridges will be closed. 
Um, the likelihood is low, but also on the other hand, you know, getting that distance on a daily basis, which is how often I was in there, you know? Yeah. So I want to have a shout out here for my, um, my insurer Kaiser. They not only paid for this extremely expensive stem cell transplant, but they put us up for a hundred days in a very nice place. Um, and we didn't pay a dime. We didn't pay a dime. That, that is also the first shout out to Kaiser ever on this podcast. <laughs> and those outside of California uh, might not know Kaiser, but those in California do know Kaiser very yeah. well. It's a, just so people understand, it's a very integrated system. Yeah. It's, it's both a healthcare system and a health insurance provider. Right. So it's just, usually you're, you're very much in their system. That's amazing. I mean, really, that is amazing. They were fabulous. Tell us, you initially had chemo. So tell us what the treatment plan was and at what point was a bone marrow transplant necessary? I, I imagine that the bone marrow transplant, uh, my oncologist knew that that would be necessary from the get-go. Uh, my disease was so advanced uh, the diagnosis is so serious and that, you know, just the chemo itself or the chemo with radiation was not going to be enough. So, um, yeah, I think it was, you know, in the, in her treatment plan from the get go. So how long from the, that first admission to the hospital before you got the bone marrow transplant. What were the steps leading up to that? Because that's that's a huge, huge big deal. Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> I was hospitalized September fifteenth, and I was done with chemo mid January. So okay. October, November, December, January. Four. Actually, it was a little more than that, but it was almost five months, and most of that time, unfortunately, was inpatient. Really? Yeah. Well, the, wow. this, you know, hyper CVAD is pretty, pretty intense stuff. And you have to be monitored every day, every day. And so, you know, um, that's where I was. And when did the bone marrow transplant happen? And for people who don't know, there are some things that have to happen before the bone marrow transplant yeah. to prepare you. Yes. So tell us about yeah. that. Well, I'm going to take a, a little step back in the sense that sure. another reason why my oncologist calls me her miracle patient is that my other, I have three brothers. My two brothers that were tested did not match my, any of my, you know, and for bone marrow, right, they were not a match. Right. And there was no one in the international database of donors. So I had one chance left, and that was a brother who had not been seen in 30 years. He had disappeared off the grid. No one knew where he was. What? Yeah. yeah. Because he wanted to be off the grid because there were some family issues, if you don't mind my asking. Like... Yeah. There, were a, there was a lot of abuse and abandonment in the home I grew up in, uh, particularly for myself and Johnny, the youngest brother who disappeared. And um, yeah, he just felt like he could never measure up to expectations. 
he was, you know, felt like he was the black sheep, you know, there was no doubt. And uh, he vanished, absolutely vanished. And what'd you guys do? Well, strangely enough, um, a friend of mine, Anne, knew that we needed to find him. And of course, we had tried everything you can sort of think of, um, you know, I was gonna say Facebook, Google. He was, um, he grew and sold drugs. And I mean, not the hard stuff, but you know, the marijuana and the hash and the mushrooms and all that stuff. Lucrative business. Yeah, yeah. So that was another reason that he wanted to stay off the grid. And so um, my friend Ann knew that I was looking for him and that um, we couldn't find him. One of my brothers had even gone down to the beaches in, in uh, Los Angeles where he had been hanging out for quite a long time. And he asked and asked and went to old apartments and nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew where he was, what had happened to him. So my friend Anne knew that I'd been looking for him and she had no idea what, what to do. And one day a friend of hers called her and this friend, I'm sorry, I never knew the woman's name. Uh, she didn't know me. This woman called and started ranting about this thing called Zabasearch. At this point, this Zabasearch engine was compiling personal information and putting it online unless you opted out and they didn't tell you you need oh. to opt out. Okay, well, that wasn't even enough. My brother, prior to this, had been uh, receiving threatening phone calls, perhaps part of his business. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So he changed his phone number and he told the phone company, I don't want it listed. No way. This is an unlisted number. It had been for years. They made a mistake. And during that one week, that his number was listed erroneously by the phone company, Zabasearch grabbed him. And this woman was saying to my friend Anne, you know, this is so invasive. I, I can't believe that they're, you know, putting all this information online. Anne went and did a search and he was there for literally a couple of days. That was it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The miracle patient, right? <laughs> right, right. So, so what happened next? Did you call him? Yes, your husband? I called him. And um, I write quite a lot about this in my book, because as you can imagine, after not seeing a brother for so many years, and because I'm seven years older than he is, I was a second mom to him. And I tried to protect him as much as I could from our parents who were uh, you know, abusive uh, addicts. I mean, you know, they, they were alcoholics. It, it was one of those, you know, horrible cliche childhoods, but I was always his protector. And so when he disappeared, it was, it was concerning to me because I still wanted to protect him. I kind of wanted to protect him from his own life, you know? And um, it's so unfortunate because he's so brilliant. He is so smart, and yet 
he went down this really awful path. I think I shouldn't judge, but that's what I thought. So I called him and the minute he picked up the phone, even after three, three decades, I knew it was him. He's got this really oh, yeah. soft, almost childlike voice. And whew, boy, it was quite a phone call. So I asked him if he would be tested and he agreed. Yes, of course he would. And uh, he was a perfect match. Oh, so yeah. Something special about siblings. Yes. So true. So he came down from Willits where he was living then. And he, um, he went through all the pre, you know, conditioning, whatever you call it for him. He had to have uh, twice daily shots of Nupogen to um, uh, enhance, that's the wrong word, um, his increase, increase his production of white blood cells. And um, so after that, you know, several days of, of that, he was hooked up to the uh, to an apheresis machine, which is um, uh, a, uh, a machine where a needle is put into one arm and then the other and the blood from the first needle goes up into the machine where the heavier stem cells are, are um, they settle out and the lighter um, blood cells keep going back into his other arm. So um, he, he spent several hours there and the collection of those cells was so beautiful. They're not red. They're a bright coral color, like salmon roe or something. They're just this really gorgeous color. Yeah. And so he donated these stem cells and the next day, um, the next day, um, I got my transplant March 26th, 2006. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 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 Wow. <sighs> now prior to that, did they wipe out your immune system? Oh yeah. Oh, it yeah. was pretty horrible. <laughs> you know, you, you have a question about like, what's the best and what's the worst? Well, the worst was wiping out the immune system because that was, it was painful, first of all, physically painful. And the other thing was that I was alone there. Um, the only people in that ward were people going through the same thing and uh, women, I should say, other women. So um, we were so immunocompromised that they didn't really want anybody else around unless it was absolutely yeah. necessary. So my husband wasn't visiting me. Uh, my daughter wasn't coming up. My friends, you know, they shouldn't be there. And um, then after the first day, I was given this HEPA filter mask that I hated more than anything. This was, <laughs> it was a monstrosity. <laughs> and I thought, why do I have to wear this? It was so awful. It was this great big gray rubber thing with big pink filters on either side. Your face is totally obscure. These great big uh, rubber, you know, uh, what should I call them? Straps, the back of your head. And when you spoke, you sounded like Darth Vader or something. <laughs> It was no, it's just so laugh. horrible. 
<laughs> but it was to protect you. Absolutely. Yes. Because my immune system was being uh, wiped out. It was being erased. And then um, uh, I would be taken every day to the um, radiation lab and they had to tattoo a little spot here on my chest. And that's where the radiation would go to get my whole upper body. Um, uh, it, it was, yeah. it was nightmarish. It really was. It really was. Um, but the best moment was that morning of the transplant because my brother and husband were there and we ha were lucky enough to have this wonderful transplant specialist, Dr. Michael Craig. And he said, this is your cure. This is your, you know, ticket to uh, many years of life. And I said, cure? He said, yeah. I said, no one has said that to me. No one ever said I would be cured. And what is that? 16 is 16 years later, you know? Ah. <laughs> How did your brother feel? Well, you know, I'd call him a hero and all that. And he said, I don't want to be called a hero. He's very... Um, modest and you know he was just so happy to help because he also you know remembers me as his protector at, when he yeah. was a child and so i think he felt like he was maybe giving back um it was beautiful yeah, of course it was beautiful i remember when i was caring for my sister and, and all of her chemo was inpatient too i hate the compare thing but you do it a lot, mm -hmm. especially with cancer. And I always was so grateful that she wasn't in the bone marrow transplant unit, the BMT unit. Right. And because the visiting hours were so limited because of just the, all the steps you had to go through to even walk into a room and visit your own child. Yeah. Whereas I think with the exception of one or two nights, I spent every single night with her Did whenever you? she was in the hospital. Really? Oh, I was always there. Oh, and but I had to go around the BMT unit to get to yeah. this little adult, you know, cleanup shower room that they had for the parents. Yeah. And every time I passed by it, I was like, well, it could be worse. Yeah. We could be in there and I wouldn't be able to see her. Yeah. 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 <sighs> wow. God, what a great story. Are you and your brother still in touch? Oh, yes. Please tell me. Yes. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Now, I will say that after being apart for 30 years and being raised in an abusive household, we didn't have a lot of good, you know, history. <laughs> However, <laughs> um, yes, we are. And um, he's still living what I would say on the edges um, and I worry about him and I want to change his life and that's not going to happen. And I just should shut up, but, um, we are in touch and I'm in a position now in my life, luckily enough to be able to help him financially. And the day may come when I have to do that a lot more, but, um, I'll be ready and I'm happy to do it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He is such a sweetheart. He is such a sweet guy. I have to share this one other story. One of the most beautiful things I ever saw was I was working at a City of Hope picnic, just working the event, not working for City of Hope. Um, but it was to celebrate all of their leukemia and lymphoma patients. Right. And I saw these identical twins, mm. and they were six years old. Oh. 
and you knew they were identical, but one girl looked so different than the other girl, but you could tell otherwise they were completely identical. And I had a feeling, and then I asked the parents, um, but sure enough, the the one who looked so different, who was swollen from steroids and all kinds of different yes. things, she received a bone marrow transplant from her identical sister yeah. when they were five. And, and this was a year later. So of course her parents were very hopeful. There yes. was still a lot going on post transplant, but it was, it, I mean, twins are usually close anyway, but for one twin to save the other's life and to see the two of them was, it's really a beautiful thing yeah, to see. That is it's so touching. So tell me what was it like post transplant? What was, what was the follow-up like? And did you have any other scares? Yeah. I did. Um, I came down with graft versus host disease 100 days after the transplant. It was the chronic type. And um, so tell people what that is because oh, I don't yeah, think okay. most people know. Graft versus host disease is um, the graft, which are the stem cells my brother gave me that went into my bone marrow. Um, graft versus host, those cells start attacking me. And they attacked my liver first. And um, they knew I had this because of my blood work, which I was getting blood work every couple days. And my liver counts were 20, 30 times normal, you know? Oh, boy. I said, oh, like, this is the Chernobyl of my liver. I mean, you know, I'm, this is bad. And yeah. so they started me on 80 milligrams of prednisone a day. And I'd never had prednisone. I didn't know what to expect. And I became an absolute harpy. I couldn't stop, you know, just biting my husband's head off. And I couldn't get my face out of the refrigerator. And it was like, oh, I was so, so nasty. And um, it's a steroid. It's a I steroid. Mean... Yeah. And so, as I mentioned, you know, I was having a lot of blood work done and I was every day, every day, every couple of days, seeing my liver counts go back towards normal. But my doctor never said, well, let's taper you a little here, you know? So I said, I'm doing this myself. I'm tapering myself, which I did. And, um, Within a couple of weeks, the liver counts were back to normal and the ulcerations I'd had in my mouth were gone and I was off of prednisone, essentially. Nobody ever said, hey, how about that prednisone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that stuff. So, um, yeah. Good for you. So that was one thing that happened afterwards, yes. Um, and... Uh, I had another scare. I thought there was a recurrence because of a number of symptoms and I had a PET scan and that was fine. So that was good. Other than those two incidents, um, I've been really healthy. I, I have to say I've been really, really healthy and uh, feel very fortunate, grateful, you know? Susan, what's one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning? I wish I would have known that this experience was going to open up a whole new world to me. 
which it has. What were you doing prior? Well, just so people know. Sure, I um, I have a degree in immunology and public health from Cal Berkeley, and I've been in the medical field essentially all my life. Not on the clinical side, but more on the um, educational side. So for uh, for the last seventeen years, while I was while I was, uh, before I got sick and through my illness, I'd been directing a nationwide speakers bureau for physicians. And what we did was we, um, I recruited the speakers. I um, concentrated on creating content for their presentations to medical groups around the country. And we did, we did not do clinical work um, because this was funded in part by a, a big pharma company. And so we, you know, we didn't touch that. But we did things like um, multicultural medicine. We did um, you know, the uh, Affordable Care Act. We did electronic medical records. We did a lot of work in communication. And uh, it was those sorts of, of uh, you know, topics that uh, I, I, um, I loved it. I, it was just such a great job. It was so much fun. And I'd worked at several journals too, um, uh, pharmacy journals and medical journals. And so, you know, I, um, that was my career for 30 years or more. <laughs> so what shifted? Um, what shifted? Well, after this experience, which I've described to you, I, I knew that I needed to write this story. And I've been writing since I was in high school, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, but this was sort of served up to me on a silver platter. This you need right. to talk about. You need to tell this story. And so I began to work on it. And um, I think it was about 10 years front to back. But of course, it wasn't full time because I was working and doing other things as well. But um, I loved the process of writing. And to help me a little bit, I got my, um, I requested my medical record, uh, medical record from Kaiser. It was 12, over 1,200 pages long. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So it gave me some, you know, things like um, test results and, um, you know, treatment protocols and, and this sort of thing. Um, but mostly I just had to write the story of, of losing my brother and finding him and the, second, yeah, that is quite yeah the twist. The second part of that though, which I think the book is really about is forgiving my parents for how he was treated. And that's, are they still alive? No, no, neither of them are. Um, and that truly is what the book is about, is finding that place um, to forgive them. And um, I, I keep working on that, you know, it isn't a one and done. Um, it's a, uh, I say in my book, forgiveness is a lifetime, not a moment. And so I, you know, I keep working on that. And um, it, it was a gift that I had no idea I would, <laughs> I would be granted at the beginning. I love that this cancer gave me this new career. I've never been happier in my work in my life. And I had some really cool gigs when I was working. Really cool. 
And uh, it's such a gift. It's such a gift. I can still get really pissed off about all kinds of little things. You know, I'm, I'm not this person who's like, oh, everything's beautiful. No, <laughs> no, not there. Probably never will be there. <sighs> One of my favorite people I've interviewed, she said, she's, for her, cancer's not a gift. Because if it's a gift, you'd be willing to give it to someone else. <laughs> I'm not going to give this. She's like, I'm not going to give this to no. anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, that is so good. A hoot. That is so good. Yeah. So you are here in the U.S. still, correct? Yes, I'm north of San Francisco, about 20 minutes. Still there. Okay. Yeah, still Beautiful here. Area. Yeah, yeah. We like it. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? So if nurse navigators would be integrated into the care that those of us who've had a complex illness uh, and you, you leave the hospital with drugs and nobody checks up on you. Nobody says, hey, how's it going? You know, uh, you, you having any problems or whatever, you know, and to tell you then what to expect at the next juncture of treatment. Okay, now we're going to be doing this. Now we're going to be testing for that. You know, have a person to call up, somebody who's a point person. And if they don't reach out to you, you can reach out to them. And I was, I mean, I was treated years ago, you know, 2005, 2006. So I think that the, um, the utilization of nurse navigators is much more than it was, but boy, oof, they are so oh. important. I would say only in major NCI centers, yeah. major cancer hospitals, yes. and even then not all of them Yeah, and not necessarily deployed well. Yeah. And it's not just cancer. I mean, there's all kinds of other, um, you know, diagnoses that, boy, be so helpful. Yeah. I think it's extremely important. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. I know you prepare. Yeah. So are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire? Oh, <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> Okay, for those of you who are listening, I can't see. She just pulled up some papers. Okay, mm -hmm. gosh, a woman after my own heart. All right. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Oh, yes, beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? John, Paul, George, and Ringo. <laughs> and George was always my favorite. Really? Oh, God, yes. Oh. Wow. What is one word that best describes you? Persistent. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? I want to hear Is, the Hawaiian singer who has passed. I want to hear him sing, In this life I was loved by you. Brings tears to my eyes. It's so gorgeous. Hmm. What about the last meal you want to eat? Well, first of all, we're starting with a big bottle of champagne, okay? <laughs> That's essential. Okay. And then we're going to follow that with some crab cakes and a Caesar salad and for dessert, lemon meringue pie. 
Oh, you have planned this out. Oh, I love it. Believe me. I mean, this was a great question. I said, oh, wow. Yeah. But the champagne, I mean, that's non-negotiable. <laughs> <laughs> what about the last person or people you want to see? Oh, my family, of course. My husband, our daughter, her family. Uh, she's got two little boys, four and seven, and her wonderful husband. And, you know. It's our little group. We don't have a big family, but it's wonderful. Yeah, it doesn't have to be big. No, it doesn't. Good people. What about the last words you'll speak? I would say to them, you are all a part of me. And that is true literally and figuratively. Everyone there in that room, I mean, my daughter and her two sons, we are literally a part of each other. But after being married for 40 years, my husband and I are part of each other and our son-in-law is just a beautiful man. And so you are all a part of me. Oh God. So beautiful. And aside from cancer, you what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers. And also please be sure to tell people how they can get in touch with you. Okay. Um, I would recommend, uh, for a broad stroke, on uh, cancer uh, caregiving survivors um, in treatment, the, the blogs on Cure Magazine. They go from things like you know, diet and lifestyle, they talk about sex, self-work, uh, they talk about regrets, you know, survivor guilt, why did I survive? Where to get the perfect boob replacements after a double mastectomy, uh, they talk about art, you know, what not to say. <laughs> To people who are either in treatment or who've survived and you know that it's okay that everything's not fine and there's just a broad stroke of real stories by real people and um, I find them very refreshing and informative and, and how can people get in touch with you? yes my website is www.susankeller.com Great. And people can find your book there? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So we will put a link to that in the workshop and the show notes to all of that. Thank you. And Susan, thank you for persisting through the technical difficulties. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. It's been, I'm honored. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.